have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to Psalm 73? We've been in a sermon series through the book of Psalms, learning how to pray better. Now, you might have heard all of these messages and are still a little confused. Because, Pastor, you don't say a whole lot about prayer. In fact, some messages you don't even mention it. But yet you say this is a sermon series on how to pray better. Well, understand something. The Bible is not a religious book. It's a relationship book. God seeks to have a relationship with us. We seek to have a relationship with Him. That relationship is founded on the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that we can have a relationship with God. God can have a relationship with us. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one connector between God and man. There's only one person who can bring God and man together in a relationship. It's the God-man, Christ Jesus. And because we're in a relationship with God, communication is important. God communicates to us. He speaks to us through the Bible, which is a living book. We communicate with God through prayer. Now, listen to me. It only stands to reason. The more that you know about the person you're speaking to, the more articulate, the more correct you can be in your communication with them. So what we're doing in Psalms actually is learning about God. We're learning some marvelous truths about God and His way of dealing with us. And as we learn about God, I hope it will allow us to pray better to Him and to understand the one we're praying to better. Now today in Psalm 73, The title of the message, It's Just Not Fair. It's Just Not Fair. Now, we're going to be looking at the entire 28 verses. But for our scripture reading, let's look at verse 12 and then go to verse 1 and 2. So we're going to go to verse 12, then back to verse 1 and 2. The psalmist writes, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world, and they continually increase in riches. Behold, these are the ungodly. These are the wicked. These are the sinful. These are those who mock and despise God. And they're the ones who seemingly prosper in the world. And they're the ones who increase in riches. In verse 1 and 2, He says, truly God has been good to Israel, the nation, even to all of us who have a clean heart. But as for me, my feet are almost gone. My steps are almost slipped. I've been knocked down by life. And I'm being pushed and pulled into the abyss. Perception and reality 
Sometimes they can be two entirely different things. Let me illustrate by using children as an example. Some children were asked for some scientific perceptions on various things. Now these were first and second and third graders. A little boy was asked about the blood vessels in the human body. And he said, well, there's three. Arteries, veins, and caterpillars. A little girl was asked about water. And she said, water is made up of two gins, oxygen and hydrogen. Oxygen is air, and hydrogen is a cocktail. That same little boy said, blood flows up one leg and down the other. That's why God gave you two legs. Another little boy said, there's three types of blood. There's positive, there's negative, and there's vegetarian. A little girl was asked how to keep milk fresh. You know what her answer was? Keep it in the cow. <laughs> a boy said if you collect a, boy, a little boy said, to collect the fumes of sulfur, you hold a deacon over the flame in a test tube. Now, I believe he meant beacon, maybe. Lastly, a little girl was asked the question that we sometimes don't want to hear. Where do babies come from? And she said, oh, my little classmates have been talking. We know from the hospital. <laughs> you see, children, sometimes they take reality. Sometimes they take the perceptions they have of reality. And it just all kind of gets mumbled, jumbled and how they look at life. But children not only have that problem, sometimes Christians do. Sometimes we as Christians have perceptions that we've heard, that we've read about, that maybe even we've experienced. And those perceptions shape in our mind and heart what is real. Now, perceptions aren't always real, except to the person who has them. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is battling with what he perceives to be true and what in reality is true. The psalmist has been taught, incorrectly I might add, but he's been taught that God is good to the good, and God is bad to the bad. If you are righteous, God will bless you. If you are wicked, God will curse you. God blesses and God curses, and it's all based on our performance. Are you listening to me? That's what he was taught. God is good to those that are good. God is bad 
to those that are bad. God blesses the righteous. God curses the wicked. And it's all based on our performance. Now that theology did him good until his life took a turn. His life began to crumble. His life began to be cut out from under him. He began to slide. And what he believed would be the abyss. He had questions based on what he was perceiving, but what was real. Why does it seem the wicked are doing so well and the righteous are doing so badly? He says, I go around and I see the righteous and they're doing badly. I see the wicked, they're doing good. It doesn't make any sense. Something's wrong. That's not the way I've been taught. Why are the sinful so successful and prosperous? Why are the godly struggling with nothing? I see it all around me. And then the psalmist makes it personal. He goes from the objective to the subjective. He says, God, I know you're good to those who are righteous. I know you hold back no good thing from those who walk with you and live for you. I know that, God. But where's my blessings? Because, God, I don't have any. Where's my blessings? You see, his theology that he perceived to be real had now caught up with him because it wasn't real. And my, may I add, before I go any further, that theology that is troubling the psalmist is still floating around today. Most of the time it's on television. The TV preachers. They just change the word righteous to faith. If you have enough faith, God will bless you. And if you don't have enough faith, God will curse you. If you have enough faith, you'll be rich. If you don't have enough faith, you'll be poor. If you have enough faith, you'll always be healthy. If you don't have enough faith, you'll be sickly. If you have enough faith, you'll never die. <laughs> if you don't have enough faith, you'll go to the grave. This theology is no different than the theology the psalmist was trying to grope with in his day. It's called baloney. There's no truth in it. But that's the perception that the psalmist had. And that perception was causing him personal problems as he faced reality. Now, I want you to notice a few things about the psalmist before we look at what he was perceiving and what was real. If you'll notice in verse 2, keep your Bibles open now. We're going to kind of march through Psalm 73. I want you to see the psalmist is honest. We've talked about before, in order to have a healthy relationship, there must be honesty. That's true of horizontal relationships. It's also true of vertical relationships. Notice in verses 1 and 2, truly God is good to Israel. Okay, God is good to the nation of Israel. He's even good to those that live for him. 
They have a clean heart. But notice verse 2. But as for me, I'm a citizen of Israel. I have a clean heart. But my feet are being cut out from under me. My steps have caused me to slip, and I'm sliding away. The psalmist is being honest with God. I believe that we should be humble when we approach God. I believe we should be polite. We should be reverent. We should be respectful. But I also believe we should be open and candid with God. I've told you many times, God can read your mind. He can discern your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. So why not just tell him? So many of us have a very poor prayer life because we're very poor at being honest with God. God can handle our frustrations, our aggravations, our our complaints, our criticisms, our doubts, our uncertainties. God can handle that. And he wants us to be honest with him. And the psalmist says, Lord, you're good to Israel. You're good to other people who are righteous, but you're not good to me. (laughs) If you were, I wouldn't be sliding and slipping away. So there's an honesty there by the psalmist. I also want you to see in verse 3, he's jealous. He says, for I was envious of the foolish, envious, jealous, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. psalmist says, Lord, I look out there and I see the wicked being blessed. And I see the righteous being cursed. I see the wicked and they're healthy. And I see the righteous and they're sickly. I see the the wicked and they're rich. I see the righteous and they're poor. I see the wicked and they live in the big house. I see the righteous and they live in the lean-to. I see the wicked and they have the nice cars. And I look at the righteous and they drive the old jalopies. I look at the wicked and they dress with $1,000 suits from Italy. They've got leather shoes. They've got the gold. They've got the accessories. And I look at the righteous and they shop at the Goodwill store. They wear rags. And he says, Lord, it's not right, it's not fair, it's not good. I wish I was like the wicked. Can you imagine saying, I wish I was like them, then you, then I would be blessed. Because you're sure not blessing me now. So the psalmist is being honest with God. He's also showing jealousy and envy to those that are wicked and the blessings that he perceives God has given them. Also, you'll notice in verse 13 and 14, he's in despair. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. I do my best to trust and obey you, Lord. 
I do my best to bring honor and glory to you. I do my best to help other people. I do my best. And what do I get for my best? This is the psalmist now. He's talking. He says, what do I get for it all? Nothing but vanity. The more I do for you, God, the sicker I get. The more debts I get. The more problems I have. The more persecution I face. The more trouble I find myself in. The more headaches and heartaches I incur. Lord, do you really want to know the truth? I just want to throw in this Christian towel sometimes and walk away and follow the devil. His crowd seems to get more blessings than yours. And then he said, there's something else I want us to see in the Bible. He's not only being honest, he's not only being jealous, He's not only showing despair, but he's confused about even what to do about it. First, look at verse 15 and 16. He says, if I say I will speak, if I want to talk about it to somebody, I'm afraid that I will offend other believers who are coming behind me, and I don't want to offend them. But if I stay quiet, it's too painful for me. Verse 16. You ever been there? Lord, I just want to scream at you. I just want to shake my fist at you. But if I do it, I'm afraid that I'm going to hurt other believers. And I don't want to do that. This is my problem with you. I don't want to include them. I don't want to cause it to be a stumbling block to them. But Lord, I can't just keep all of this stuffed and stifled inside of me. I've got to get it out. I'm becoming negative, I'm becoming critical, I'm becoming bitter. I don't know what to do. So here's the psalmist. Maybe here you are right now. Why isn't God blessing me? I go to church, I read my Bible, I say my prayers, I serve, I give, I invite people to come. I like the pastor. I applaud Keith and the choir. And yet my life has fallen apart. And the drunkard out there who runs around with women, who abuses his children, who wouldn't keep a job if he worked in a pie factory, he's sucking off the government. He does everything wrong. He does everything bad. And he's sitting on top of the world. Truth be known, each and every one of us have those thoughts and feelings sometimes. How can that godly evangelist have cancer and that pagan infidel live to be 90 in good health? This is where the psalmist is at, ladies and gentlemen. That's, this is his struggles, and his struggles are based on perceptions that he's been told, and those perceptions are not true. Now, what are those perceptions? Again, the perceptions begin with the erroneous theory that if you're good, God will be good to you, and if you're bad, God will be bad to you. If you walk with God, all you'll have is sunshine. If you don't walk with God, all you're getting is storms. If you walk with God, you'll be healthy. 
If you don't walk with God, you'll be sicker. If you walk with God, you'll have more money than you know what to do with. If you don't walk with God, you'll be poor. That's the theology that's taught in many places. And as I told you before, it is wrong, it is erroneous, it's garbage. But the psalmist somehow has believed it. And now that his life isn't what it's supposed to be, he's blaming God. Now notice in verses 3 through 12, just keep your Bible open because I don't have time to read all the verses. He perceives, first of all, that the wicked are rich. He says, Lord, these wicked people, they're just rich. Notice he says in verse 3, look at your Bible, he says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Lord, all they do is walk around and boast and brag and bray like a donkey and toot their own horns and flaunt and strut about all of the money they've got. Look at me. I've got millions. Look what I've done. I've made millions. He said, Lord, they worship money. They're rich, but they're wicked. The wicked are the ones who are rich. Then in verses 4 and 5, he says, the wicked are the ones who are satisfied. Your people don't have no money. The, the wicked are rich. Your people struggle with contentment, and the wicked, they seem to be satisfied. They don't seem to have any problems. They don't seem to have any burdens, no struggles, no sadness, no issues, no cares. They live for the devil in the fast lane, and they never crash or burn. Now, this is the psalmist. He's looking out at life. And he says, those who are the most wicked, they have the most money. Those who are the most wicked, they seem to have the most satisfaction and contentment. He says, those who are wicked, in verses 6 through 11, he says, they're the most arrogant, prideful people you'd ever know. They strut by God, sticking up their middle finger in his face and daring him to do something about it. That's what he's, he's portraying. People that are so full of themselves, they have the audacity, the arrogance to strut by God, stick up their middle finger in his face and say, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. They curse God. They mock God. They defy God. And yet they still get blessed. And here I am praying to you, praising you, thanking you, saying words of love to you, and I get nothing. And then in verse 12, he closes out his perceptions. The wicked are the ones who are rich. The wicked are the ones who are satisfied. The wicked are the ones who are prideful and arrogant. And the wicked never seem to get punished. Verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world, and they only increase in riches. They get away with it. They break the law of man, and they get away with it with their attorneys and their money. They break the laws of God, and God, you don't seem to ever do anything about it. They commit crime, they sin with impunity and immunity. 
And this is what the psalmist perceived. Have you ever perceived that? Sure you have. That's where the psalmist is at in Psalm 73. It isn't fair. But God has a way of taking us out of our perceptions and moving us to reality. Okay? I want you to see now as we move from the psalmist's perception. Now remember, I didn't say these things were true, but they're true to him based on what he's been told that was erroneous. So God is going to have to change the mind and heart of the psalmist to move him from perception to reality. I want you to look at verse 17. Now the first 16 verses, the psalmist is frustrated, he's aggravated, he's critical, he's judgmental, he's negative, he's becoming bitter, he's making allegations and accusations against God, he's accusing God of forgetting his own and blessing those that are not his own. And then in verse 17, everything is going to change. Look at your Bible. That's the way I felt from it says, until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I understood the end of the wicked. Don't miss that. I had these perceptions. I was down in the dumps. I was angry with God. I wanted to leave the faith until I went to Now, I want you to understand something. Listen carefully. The sanctuary in that day was the church of that day. But in the sanctuary of that day, not only was it a place, but it was a person. Because God himself lived in the sanctuary. In that day, the psalmist lived. When you came to church, you were coming into the very presence of God because his person was in the place. Now, all of that changed later. And that day, God had a temple for his people. Today, God has a people for his temple. And that day, God lived in a building called the sanctuary. Today, God lives in you and I. You don't have to come to church to worship God anymore, although you should. Because God is in you. If you're a believer, God is in you. Your body is now his sanctuary. But the psalmist comes to the sanctuary. And there in that sanctuary, in a worship service, he gets a glimpse of God. again. You see, his eyes hadn't been on God. His eyes had been on himself. His eyes had been on other people. His eyes had been on his situations and circumstances. When you do that, you're in trouble. And all of a sudden, he comes to the sanctuary, and God shows him himself. God shows the psalmist who he is again. He's majestic. He's mighty. He's sovereign. He's supreme. He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. God shows the psalmist himself. And things begin to change. 
there's no way you can see a risen Christ and not be changed. Now what happens when he sees the risen Lord is the spirit of that Lord begins to take away the perceptions and trashings and replace them with realities. Four realities that will now be affirmed to the psalmist in verses 18 through 20. The psalmist is given the reality that the wicked are headed for ruin. The wicked are headed for ruin. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places and will cast them down into destruction. God reminded the psalmist when he appeared before him that nobody gets away with nothing. It may appear that way sometimes. That might be our perceptions that people are getting away, but nobody gets away. Listen to me carefully. Every sin that you have ever committed, every sin, every sin that I've ever committed, be it a thought, a feeling, an attitude, a word, a deed, a lifestyle, is going to be judged. Not one sin will ever get away from the judgment of God. One day, we will be judged. You will either be judged in Jesus or you will be judged by yourself. But you will be judged. Those of us who have been judged in Jesus will find that we have been acquitted. We're not guilty because he paid for our sins once and for all and forever at Calvary. And those who have rejected Jesus, they will pay for their own sins. They won't have a Savior to stand in the gap for them. They will face the judgment seat of God alone. Judgment will be sure, and it will be swift, it will be held. I know that's a word that some of you folks maybe haven't heard in a while, hell. But the God who made heaven made hell. And hell was never made for man. God made hell for the devil and his demons. It was to be a prison for them. But if man chooses to reject Jesus and follow the devil and the demons, understand where you're going to follow them too to hell nobody escapes you say I'll escape pastor I'm not going to live for Jesus I'm going to live like the devil and when I die I'm going to get cremated and I'll get away no you won't God will put you back together again and you'll stand before him you're going to answer to your sins if, if you the only way you won't answer for him give your sins to Jesus and let him answer. But hell is dark. You go there, there's no light. Absolute pitch black darkness. It's painful. The maggots will eat and the fires will burn your body, but they'll never consume. It's a lonely place. Even though there might be billions of people down there, you will be by yourself for all eternity. It is a wasteful place. All of the potential that God made you to have, all the potential that God could have given you if you got saved, will be wasted. It's like putting a great white shark in a bathtub or a bald eagle in a parakeet cage. 
wasted potential. In hell, you're wasted potential. Hell is forever. We can't get that concept in our mind. It's forever. There is no escape. There's no ending. There's no probation. There's no parole. There's no plea bargains. There's no political amnesty. It's forever. And the worst thing about hell, if that's not bad enough, ladies and gentlemen, this is where the wicked are going. The worst thing about it at all is you will have a memory there. You will remember services just like this. If you're sitting here today and you perish without Jesus, you'll remember this service today. You'll remember me preaching. You'll remember me talking to you about how Jesus could pay for your sins. You'll remember you walking out and saying, I'll pay for my own sins. I don't need no Jesus. And you'll be in hell remembering that. How you could have gotten saved and you didn't. And the haunting of that memory will haunt you forever and ever and ever. The psalmist looks up and sees God. God reminds him nobody gets away. Secondly, he also sees in verse 21 and 22, not only that the wicked are headed for ruin, but he also sees that he needs to repent. Notice in 21 and 22, he mentions, my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my own reins. Why? Because I was foolish. I was ignorant. I acted like a dumb ox before you, God. Lord, I repent of listening to theology that was bad. I repent, Lord, of having thoughts about you that were bad, feelings toward you that were bad, saying things about you that were wrong. Lord, would you forgive me? I'm so sorry that I listened to those preachers and those theologians that didn't know what they were talking about. I'm so sorry I got hooked into all that nonsense. Lord, forgive me. He repents. And then in verses 23 through 27, the reality of the ruin that faces the wicked. The reality of I must repent before this holy God who's done nothing but love me and I said things about him that weren't true. And then the reality is this. God does reward the righteous. He doesn't always do it the way we would want. He doesn't always do it in the, the fashion we would want. But God takes care of his own. In verse 23, the psalmist is reminded of God's presence and God's protection. That God holds us in his right hand. The psalmist is reminded of that. In verse 24, he's reminded of God's guidance. He directs our path. God's grip, he holds us. And God's glory that we're headed to. God's glory is heaven. In verse 23 and 24, the psalmist learns that sometimes wealth is not what we think it is. You know what wealth is, ladies and gentlemen? What do you have right now in your portfolio that money can't buy and death can't take away? That's your wealth. How wealthy are you? What do you have right now in your possession that money can't buy and death can't take away? That's your wealth. 
see many of us say we're not wealthy because we don't have this and that material things and money. That's not wealth. And the psalmist comes to that conclusion that he was a wealthy man because he had the presence of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Yo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. He had the protection of the Lord. He had God's guidance. He had the grip of God on his hand, and he was going to glory. We do have it made, don't we? We just don't always know it. I like the imagery that's given in those verses, verses 23 through 27. You know what the imagery is? God is a father, and he takes the hand of his little child. He doesn't let us hold his hand. He holds our hand. He holds our hand. And he leads us and guides us through life, providing for us, protecting us, assuring us of his love, his grace, his mercy, his presence. And he just kind of guides us through. And then when it's all over, we're in heaven. You see, he forgot all of that. He had to be reminded. And then lastly, in verses 27 and 28, he's reminded of one other thing. And all this is reality now. The reality is, if this is really who God is, he's a God of grace and mercy. He is a God of blessing. No, he doesn't always give us what we think we need to have, but he meets our need. If that's who he is, should we not declare him last? Should we not reveal him to these very lost people that we sometimes look back and envy? I wish I could be like that Hollywood actor. I wish I could be like that sports figure. I wish I could be like that banker who's got a billion dollars. I wish I could be like that. No, you don't. Because if they don't know Jesus, they don't have nothing. The psalmist says, notice in the last verse, verse 28, he says, that I might declare all thy works. That word declare means to publicly testify of who God is and what he can do. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a responsibility to declare Jesus Christ out there. Our world might think they're getting away with something. The people who are out Jesus might think that they're getting away with something, but they're not getting away with nothing. They're facing a judgment that is going to be catastrophic. We must declare to them that the God that we serve can save. The God that we serve can change. The God that we serve provides and protects his own. We've got to proclaim that God. We've got the good news. Out there is the bad news. But we keep the good news in here, so all they hear is the bad news. We've got to share the good news. The psalmist, he got back on track. Perceptions got eliminated. Realities became his focus again. He saw God, and he finished strong. In closing, I want to leave you three little nuggets. Very quick. First of all, life is not fair. You look up here. Life is not fair. If you're going through life right now expecting life to be fair, you are going to be disappointed, aggravated, frustrated, negative, and bitter all the time. Life is not fair between the saints and the sinners, 
and life is not fair between the saints and the saints. Are you listening to me? Whenever you go around trying to measure God's love and God's blessings off somebody else, you will always be in an uproar. What God does for me, He does for me. What God does for you, He does for you. He knows exactly what we need. He gives us exactly what we need. He's gracious and He's generous always. But what He does for me, He does not owe to you. What He does for you, He does not owe for me. He treats us all as individual children. He loves us all the same, but He knows what we need, and He does not always give us the same thing. And if you go through life saying, I'm just mad at God because He gave so-and-so over there a million dollars, He didn't give me nothing. You're always going to be in an uproar. Life is not always fair. Lazarus was the poor man. The rich man, two different ways of life until they died. Then everything got balanced out in the end, didn't it? So life is not fair down here. If you expect it to be fair, you'll be miserable. Secondly, life is fair up there, though. God has a way of balancing the books in eternity. So you keep on living for the Lord, even when you don't think nobody notices, nobody cares, and you get nothing out of it. I'm telling you, one day it will all wash out. Blessings will be distributed in heaven to those who didn't get them down here. And the judgments will be distributed in hell to those who thought they were getting away with it in this life. And then lastly, life is not always fair here. Life will be fair up there. And lastly, let's not get upset with what God does for somebody else. Let's just focus on what He's doing for us. In closing, you'll always be poochy-lipped if you're wondering why you're not getting something somebody else is getting. And there's a bunch of poochy-lipped Christians. I can't believe they got a new car. I sing first chair choir. They sing second chair choir. I never crack. They crack all the time, and yet they get the new car. Ain't fair. That preacher, he works three hours a week. He makes more than I do working 40. Ain't fair. You know what's not fair? If I was a Methodist, I'd only work one hour a week. I might become a Methodist. It ain't fair. I've been in that church 23 years. I ain't never got nothing. That Johnny come lately has been here for two months and got two gift cards already. I can't believe I'm not a deacon. I've been out. Say, Pastor, who are you talking about? 
upset, ladies and gentlemen, with what, how God does his business. In closing, there was a prophet. He was the greatest prophet who ever lived. That's not my estimation. That's the estimation of the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. He was speaking of John the Baptist. And in the last months of John's life, John is in a hole, a literal hole. He's in a dungeon. He's in darkness. The only company he has is rats and roaches and snakes and lizards. The sewage runs through his cell, so he's always up to his ankles in human waste. He lives on bread and water. What crime has he done to deserve that? He dared to speak out against a politician who was living in adultery. And the politician got mad at him and threw him in prison. And so the greatest prophet who's ever lived, he's the cousin of Jesus. He's the one who came to announce the world. There's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is in a hole. He starts asking himself the question, where is Jesus? Jesus is over there raising the dead. Jesus is over there cleansing a leper. Jesus is over there casting out demons. Jesus is over there giving walk to the lame, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute. Jesus is doing all these good things for a bunch of people who have never done nothing for him. And here I am. I'm the great prophet. I'm his cousin. I'm family. I've served him faithfully all my life. Here I am in this hole. Why did he show up and give me a miracle? And Jesus said a remarkable thing. Blessed is the man who doesn't get upset at the way that I do. There is a special blessing for a person who just trusts me and doesn't get angry what I do with somebody else or don't do for them. John learned that lesson. Did he get set free? No, he got his head taken off. But I promise you he's decorated in heaven. Heads are bowed and eyes.